listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Forgotten War. The Philippines, the USA, war, colonialism, and the martial arts. Part 5. Last time, I took you through action in the Cuban theater of the Spanish-American War, culminating in the prelude to its most well-known battle, the Battle of San Juan Heights. As the Americans grew close to the Spaniards, the huge hot-air observation balloon that their commanding general had ordered into the sky was punctured by enemy fire just as they were attempting a very dangerous river crossing. The wreckage of the balloon plummeted down on trees, soldiers, and water, making the crossing vastly more dangerous. Eighty Americans were killed by enemy fire in the resulting confusion. It was at that moment that a 38-year-old captain named John J. Pershing appeared, charging at the head of a group of dismounted Buffalo soldiers of the 10th Cavalry. Those of you with a little knowledge of history may have heard of Mr. Pershing. While a captain here in 1898, he would later race through the ranks, skipping several, and become a brigadier general within seven years, and a four-star general 12 years after that when he commanded the American troops in World War I. I remember learning about General Pershing in elementary school. I remember that his nickname was Black Jack Pershing. I had always assumed that that meant he was as dangerous as the weapon known as a blackjack, which is a flexible leather baton filled with lead powder, often used by criminals. I thought that was cool. But it was wrong. The nickname was coined for an entirely different reason. As it turns out, John Pershing was an early advocate, at least among white people in America, for African Americans. In his early adulthood, he had taught at an African American school. He had commanded Buffalo soldiers for years before the Spanish-American War, and was not shy about singing their praises as the finest soldiers he had ever known, to any who would listen. During these highly racist times, this earned him a great deal of spite and hatred from many of the rest of the officer corps in the United States Army. It also earned him a nickname. I will not repeat that nickname, but I will describe it for you. In the history of racism in the United States, there is, of course, a word that has come to be more emotionally loaded than any other single word. We know this word as the N-word. There's also a two-word phrase used by American racists, saved with special loathing for those white people who actually had the temerity to associate with, speak kindly of, promote the interests of, or even, horror of horrors, have sex with, and even children with, black folks. That foul two-word phrase is, N-word lover. There was no greater insult that a white American racist could fling at another white American, at least in his or her own twisted mind. 
Pershing's original nickname was N-word lover Jack Pershing. It was often shortened to simply N-word Jack Pershing. You know, when you want to be hateful but you're in a hurry. This was softened to Black Jack Pershing, a nom de guerre that he proudly wore for the rest of his life, and in the history books ever since. He was an instructor at West Point when the war broke out, and quickly sought to rejoin his old unit, the Buffalo Soldiers of the 10th Cavalry. He had raised hell through official channels when the black soldiers endured abuses from the white locals in Tampa, and again when they were confined below decks on troop ships for more than two weeks in inhuman conditions. But despite his best efforts, nothing was done. He was, after all, only a lowly captain in an army full of racism among the senior officers. Anyway, back to the troops crossing the river. Pershing led the way, wading halfway across to a point where he stood waist-deep and directed traffic while bullets were flying all around him. Once his men were all across, he rejoined them, continuing to lead the advance towards the Spanish positions. More troops followed, including what was left of the Rough Riders. Theodore Roosevelt was pissed off that his unit had not been assigned to the main attack on San Juan Hill, but instead to play a supporting role in the attack on the less significant Kettle Hill. The American troops fanned out and made their way into their respective positions, enduring intense enemy fire in the process. Once again, they were taking casualties while awaiting final orders. The Rough Riders were getting hit especially hard. Before they could take an active part in the battle, they were down to less than 50 men. They had numbered more than 500 before the Battle of Las Guasimas. Some units were afraid to move, feeling pinned down by enemy fire short of the positions they were supposed to occupy. In one case, the Buffalo Soldiers of the 25th Infantry had to move completely through one of these units and take up a position in advance of them. Gradually, a general advance along all the line took place, some units moving faster than others. Pershing ordered his section of the 10th to charge, and they bravely complied. As things developed, he veered his unit to the right to reinforce the disintegrating left flank of the Rough Riders on Kettle Hill. As the Americans advanced up both hills, they were occasionally obstructed by barbed wire, slowing their advance and causing yet further casualties. The hill became steeper, and the Rough Riders, still less physically conditioned than the regular troops, began slowing from fatigue, many of them dropping to all fours to literally crawl. The Buffalo soldiers on their left flank continued to quickly make their way up the hill. Roosevelt, one of the only attackers on horseback, was grazed in the face by a bullet, which ripped his glasses off. He was severely nearsighted, and he kept several replacement pairs one of which he pulled from his pocket and put on his face. His horse, Texas, nearly became ensnared in barbed wire, but several of his men came forward and flattened out the wire so that the horse could proceed. Later, another strand of the prickly wire barrier appeared in the thick undergrowth, and this time Texas did become entangled. Roosevelt was forced to dismount and proceed on foot. Americans on Kettle Hill continued advancing through heavy fire until a miracle happened. As it turns out, 
the Spaniards had failed to deploy on what experts call the military crest of the hill. In layman's terms, that means that during the last part of their climb up the hill, the Americans were perfectly safe in an area at which the Spaniards could not shoot. At each point along the line, upon realizing this, the Americans redoubled their efforts, shouting joyous war cries. As they grew very near, the Spanish soldiers abandoned their fortified positions. One of them, a bugler, disoriented in the chaos, ran straight down the hill and right into Theodore Roosevelt's arms. He was made a prisoner. Buffalo soldiers from the 10th Cavalry were the first to make it to the top of the hill, where they planted their regimental guidon, that's a nerdy name for a flag, and the American flag. Now this is an important point. Theodore Roosevelt had made it a point of honor that, despite orders from the generals, the Rough Riders should be the first unit up the hill. And he would later claim that that's exactly what took place. But hundreds of witnesses say otherwise, including one of the Rough Riders, a man from New Mexico named Nova Johnson, who later said, quote, You should have seen the amazement Colonel Teddy's face took on when he reached the top of that first ridge, only to find that the colored troopers had beat us up there. But the main theater of this battle was going on to the left of the Americans who had just struggled up Kettle Hill. San Juan Hill was an even tougher nut to crack. The same hurry up and wait while being shot at was going on there, too. Compared to Kettle Hill, the approach to San Juan Hill was steeper, especially on the left, had more barbed wire and more dug-in Spaniards to face. The Buffalo Soldiers of the 24th Infantry led the way on the left side of the line, using their bayonets to cut through the barbed wire. Just as had happened at Kettle Hill, a gradual and sometimes halting advance all along the American line began. The Spaniards directed a withering fire at them, including a battery of two mountain artillery pieces. The Americans managed to get four Gatling guns set up about 700 yards from the peak of San Juan Hill and began directing fire towards the fortified blockhouse that made the nucleus of the defenses there. The peculiar rapid-fire hammering sound of the Gatling guns added to the cacophony of battle, and it soon became apparent that these ancestors to fully automatic weapons were both accurate and effective against the Spanish. As a matter of fact, the effect was so obvious that the American troops over on Kettle Hill could see what was happening. They began to cheer and directed gunfire towards the Spanish on San Juan Hill. The 24th Infantry and the other regular soldiers swarmed up San Juan Hill, eventually reaching a similar protective shadow in the enemy's field of fire as the one encountered on Kettle Hill. Once again, the Spaniards had failed to deploy on the military crest of the hill. The Buffalo Soldiers of the 24th Infantry were among the very first to reach the crown of the hill. The Battle of San Juan Heights was over. Well, except for one part. Do you remember the fortified village of El Canay to the north? The one that threatened the northern flank of the planned American attack? The one that General Lawton was ordered to take out so the assault on San Juan Heights could begin? and that Lawton estimated would take two hours to reduce. Well, as I told you, the American field commanders finally grew impatient and attacked anyway, without hearing anything from Lawton. 
and things worked out as they did. But the Battle of El Caney is a story in itself. The Spanish commander and troops there executed a defense that can only be described as heroic, and it lasted from the morning into the night, when El Caney finally fell to the Americans. In any case, the Americans now had possession of the heights overlooking the target city of Santiago. They hurriedly began digging entrenchments and fortifications, moving artillery into position. The Spanish had a naval fleet that had been hiding in Santiago Bay from the American fleet, which was waiting a few miles away, like a predator waiting for prey to emerge from its den. The Spanish admiral had no choice. His fleet was now in range of the American guns on the heights. He ordered the ships to make a run for it. But the American fleet was too fast, too modern, and too powerful. The Spanish fleet was destroyed in an action that could only charitably be called a naval battle. Within days, the Americans and Spanish began to negotiate the removal of Spanish troops from the island of Cuba. It was fairly easy to come to an agreement. All the Spanish really required was that the word surrender not be used. It was a near thing, too, because the Spanish commander had been right. Yellow fever and malaria were beginning to decimate the American troops. After a month-long horror show of brave American soldiers dying in hospital tents, it was decided to remove those still alive to a quarantined medical camp at Long Island, New York. In any case, the Cuban theater of the Spanish-American War was finally at peace. What was next for the American troops? Was the war over for the Buffalo soldiers? Not hardly. And I'll tell you about it next time. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of the Martial Brain Podcast at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Martial Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com. <laughs>